Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W.A.B.E. in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Dance Around the World meets Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 in Dancing Joy, a new film created by Kate Tsubata. Later this hour, City Lights producer Summer Evans speaks with the filmmaker and two of the featured performers about the unifying message of the Ode to Joy and Dance. First... Arturo Sandoval is a giant among musicians, known for his artistry as jazz trumpeter, pianist, and composer, a protege of the renowned jazz master Dizzy Gillespie, Mr. Sandoval carries on a mighty legacy. President Obama awarded him the 2013 Presidential Medal of Freedom. He has won 10 Grammy Awards, an Emmy Award for Best Composer, six Billboard Awards, and he holds an honorary doctorate in fine arts from the University of Notre Dame. Arturo Sandoval will perform in Atlanta at the Rialto Center on November 12th, and he joins me now via Zoom. Maestro Sandoval, it is an honor to speak with you. Welcome to City Life. I really overwhelmed with such an introduction. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity to get close to the people who listen to your transmission. And, you know, and I'm, my dream is to go there and see a full house, you know, full of people. That's, that's going to be everything we need, you know. And I'm extremely happy and excited about it our band now because I got three new members in the band and the band, this is by far the best band I ever has in my life, you know, and, and extremely, extremely, you know, grateful. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, I can't imagine you're playing to anything but a packed house. <laughs> Would you tell us, please, how your musical journey evolved 
since your introduction to trumpet as a boy in Cuba? Oh, that's an antique history. <laughs> <laughs> Not so far back. You know, I came from a extremely poor family. I grew up in the middle of the countryside of the island of Cuba, in the in a small village, and nobody in my family was involved with music or any art manifestation. You know, I was the very first one, and in the very beginning, nobody was agree with that. Everybody said, "Musician? Are you crazy? What are you talking about?" And that was the very beginning, you know, my journey. Even now, I, I don't know why I fall in music. I fall in love with, with music so intensely, you know. And I, I I was so sure about my decision that I want to become a musician. I want to, no matter what, you know. And always say that I'm never going to get tired to repeat that music saved my life. And also the life of my family as well, you know, because all my close family there in the U.S., you know, and I'm so happy that I brought them little by little. You know, I'm eternally grateful to the music because the music gave me so many incredible opportunities over the years, you know, that I have no word to express my gratitude. Meeting your idol, Dizzy Gillespie, in 1977 was transformative for you. Now, you've recorded and performed many tributes to him. You wrote a book chronicling your relationship with that jazz legend. How did Dizzy change your life? Oh, that's a very beautiful question. You know, I, I, actually, the name of the book is The Man Who Changed My Life. Yes. That's, and and uh, absolutely, he did. We we met, yet, yeah, as, as you say, in May 77 in Havana, Cuba. He came in the boat, in the cruise, jazz cruise that was playing in the Caribbean. And then they stopped there for a couple of days, 48 hours. And, and somebody called me and told me that, Arturo, I know you are a big fan of this Gillespie. He's coming to Havana this afternoon. I said, oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, that's a good joke. <laughs> and, I, and he said, no, no, man, I'm very serious. I'm very serious. Okay, okay. And uh, anyway, I, I went to the harbor. I was waiting there, waiting, waiting until the boat arrived. And when I saw him coming down the stairs, I said, oh, my goodness. Now what I'm going to do, because I cannot speak one word in English, I would love to tell him thousand things, but I cannot say one. But, I, you know, God is so good to me. And um, when he was walking toward me, a guy walks behind him and starts talking to me in Spanish, perfect Spanish. Uh, he was a percussionist. He was in the boat playing percussion with uh, Stan Getz. Wow. Who was in the boat as well. Also, Air Father Hine, you know, he was in the boat too. I want to get on that boat. Uh, me too. <laughs> but not yet. I, I would like to wait a few years. <laughs> <laughs> and he's, he asked me a bunch of questions. Uh, yeah, do you know this man? I say, yes, I do. And he said, are you a musician? I said, uh, uh, no, no. <laughs> I was afraid, you know, I was embarrassed to 
say in front of Dizzy Gillespie that I was a trumpet player, you know. And then anyway, he jumped in my car and I show him Havana for the very first time. And um, later on, the same day, at nighttime, we got a jam session with the visitors, you know. I was playing with the band. At that time, the name of the band was uh, Irakere. And we played for them, and then we played all together, you know. But I knew a lot of his licks, you know, a lot of his phrases and, and the way he would play and things. And I was playing those things during our part, you know, the, the first part of the thing. And he was laughing and laughing and laughing. And, um, and then when we played together, you know, uh, uh, by, by the way, when he get to that place at nighttime, he saw me warming up backstage with the trumpet in my hand, you know, and he asked some, some people there, what the heck? my driver is doing with the trumpet. And somebody said, no, he's a trumpet player. He said, hell no, he's my driver. <laughs> you know, but that day changed not only my life, the whole group life, because when he come back to New York, he start talking about those musicians that he met in Cuba. And he talked to a lot of people. One day, Later on, we were in our rehearsal there in Havana, and a gentleman came to the rehearsal with a couple of other people, and he sat down there, sat down there, and uh, he watched the whole rehearsal. We were a little intrigued because we we knew that it was a guy from somewhere in Europe or U.S. or something. And the way he looks, you know, when we finished the rehearsal, he came to us uh, through that interpreter. He said, my name is Bruce Lungwell, and I, I am the, pres the president of CBS Record. And I'm here to listen to you because DC Gillespie has been talking about you nonstop. And I want to be sure that that was true. <laughs> okay, tell you the long story a little shorter. A few months later, that gentleman put us on the plane and we flew to LaGuardia in New York. That was early afternoon. They took us in the little bus and they drove us to the Carnegie Hall to do a sound check for the a concert the same night. The very first day we came to the U.S., we play at Carnegie Hall. We play the second half of the program, the first half, was um, Marilu Williams' trio and Bill Evans' trio. And we played the second half of the, of the program. And then in the last tune, Maynard Ferguson and Stan Getz joined us on the, on the stage and played the last tune with us. And that was a very first Grammy. <laughs> Imagine here you are a very young man, your idol, this man you worship, is not only friendly and embracing, but is so impressed with your talent 
And first day in America, right off the plane, you go straight to Carnegie Hall. Did you think you were dreaming? I, I still think I was dreaming because that was overwhelming big time, you know. I, I said to myself, oh, my goodness, it should be a dream because it's impossible. So many things happen in one day. And then when we saw to the audience there in the first row was Mario Bauza, Tito Puente, Tuk Stillman, and a bunch of musicians from New York. The, the, the Carnegie Hall was packed, packed because... Uh, that was the first time in many, many years that a, a band from Cuba came to the U.S., you know. And the rest is history. What a gorgeous story. Oh, my goodness. And then that was a Sunday night. And Monday, Mongo Santa Maria, who was there as well that night, he invited me to go to the uh, village vanguard. That because uh, Monday night, Tad John and Mel Lewis used to play there for years on Monday night. And then I went there. I, I brought my trumpet under my arm. Tad John invited me when we, after we met. He invited me to play with them. And then I played the long two sets with the band. That was the day after, which is mean the first two days in the U.S. ever, I played Carnegie Hall the first night, and the second night I played the Village Band. <laughs> and then you thought you could retire. Oh, uh, no, <laughs> that was the very beginning. I know. Unfortunately, I, I could defect it on that tree, but I was married already for three years, and I, I, we got a son that have two years old. I, I, you know, I couldn't leave the, the island and leave my family behind, you know. I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. No. I refused to do it, and I have to wait until... The Cuban government made a mistake and gave us a very special permission to my wife and my son to go to Europe and spend a couple of weeks with me there when, when I was on tour with this illness, by the way. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights, speaking with Arturo Sandoval, the legendary musician will perform at the Rialto Center this Saturday, November 12th. People tend to put things, and others, in categories, which isn't always a good idea. You play more than one instrument, superbly at that, and your mentor, Dizzy Gillespie, talked about teaching music by way of piano. Why do you believe the piano is essential to understanding music? I always say that the piano, the instrument itself, is the best music teacher that any musician could have. Because, you know, besides to hear the music that you're playing, you can visualize what you're playing. And then, for example, I'm going to tell you, when I improvise on, on the trumpet, I close my eyes and what I see in my mind is, is the keyboard. And then in terms of have our absolute control of the harmony and the changes, the chord changes, all those things, is extremely important to be very familiar with the piano. But the thing start when I read one of those uh, books of jazz history books, in one of the chapters of the book, 
Miles Davis came to DC Gillespie asking him for advice uh, to help him to improve his improvisation. And DC said, okay, let's go to the piano. I, I could help you. And Miles said, piano? And DC said, yes, the piano. That's the only way I can help you to get a little deeper into the improvisation sense. And when I read that, I said, oh, oh, I think this uh, not only good for Miles, it's good for every everybody who want to improve the improvisation skills, you know. And then I'm, I I went obsessed with the piano, but unfortunately I couldn't buy a piano in Cuba because the government there, you know, the dictatorship, they control everything and they also provide sometimes some instrument or something. And I, when I ask them that I, I, I want to buy a piano, they say, what for? You're a trumpet player, forget about it. We have a long list here of pianists waiting to buy a piano. And then I couldn't, I bought my first piano when I get in the U.S. in 1990. Oh my. Now, in addition to your jazz and Latin music background, You've also written your own concerto for trumpet and orchestra on the album Arturo Sandoval, the classical album. Would you talk about your relationship to classical music? Okay, in the very beginning, when I was 11 years old, my first uh, gigs, it was in my village with a small band they call... uh, a traditional Cuban music, the name of the of the style is son, S-O-N. Uh, yes. And I was doing that for three years until I got on a scholarship to go to the conservatory to, to get a, a classical training. And that in that school, by the way, we weren't allowed to listen, talk, or play anything but classical music. That was three years I was there. And um, as you say, I, I wrote two trumpet concertos and I wrote some other pieces, you know, in the classical uh, vibe. Actually, in December, next month, Chicago Symphony going to do a premiere on the Chicago Symphony Hall of the piece that was commissioned to, to write. And I'm extremely, extremely happy about it. And my second concerto, unfortunately, I was ready to record it in the beginning of the pandemic, and then I couldn't do it. But I'm looking forward to do it as soon as possible, you know. But uh, talking about the styles of music and uh, different genres of things, most of the time I get very upset when they put or announce me as a Latin jazz trumpet player. You know, I, oh my goodness, I don't like that at all. I don't like that at all. Because, uh, you know, I, I'm a music lover more than anything else. I love music, all kind of music. 
my favorite composer is Sergei Rachmaninoff. And, um, you know, and, and things like that. I'm a huge fan of the impressionist music, like mm. Bell and Satie and Debussy and all those. You know, I, I love that so much. And also, those things help me to write score for movies as well, you know, because I have been doing that since God. That's one of my dreams, you know, to be more busy writing score for movies. But I did a, a few. For example, I did the last two movies of uh, Clint Eastwood. I wrote a couple of scores for him of, uh, in the for the movie the mule and the other one called Richard Jewell, which is the name of the of the person that was wrongfully accused to put the, the bomb in the Olympic in Atlanta. You know, it's, it's, it's based on the true story. And that was a, a huge honor and a privilege for me to, to work with Mr. Eastwood, you know. I can, well, he's quite the jazz fan. He must have been, you know, bowing down to you. I would think. Oh, we have we have a beautiful, beautiful time together. He he used to come to to my house because I got a, my studio here too, and I was doing all my demos and things and all my mock-up, you know, for the for the movie. I was doing it at home, and then he come every day, and then my wife prepared lunch for us and. And that, that was a beautiful, beautiful time. I enjoy every minute of it. I can imagine. Now, you talked about composing and film scores. You won an Emmy for the film score of For Love or Country, the HBO movie based on your life. Actor Andy Garcia portrayed you. How did it feel having a movie made about your own life? And you weren't very old. Uh, you know, I'm going to tell you, uh, that was exactly 22 years ago. That was in the year 2000. And um, I'm extremely grateful because I, you know, we are not prepared for such a thing to see your your part of your life, a little part of your life on the on the big screen, you know. And I'm very, very grateful because HBO decided to share my part of the, my story with the people, you know, because everybody has a story to to tell, you know. And if they decide to share mine and you know, I I I'd be very grateful until the last day of my life, you know. My driver doing playing the trumpet. The driver? G give me my horn.
so also my family, the people who will come, you know, my great grand great children and whoever, you know, they they're gonna have a, a testimony to learn how we get in the country or how was the whole process of them. Unfortunately, the movie end the very first day and the, the not the day, the moment we arrived to the US, my wife came from London and I came from Rome, Italy. And that moment when we arrived to the airport, that's a is the very end of the movie. They started doing the, the end credits on top of that scene. But I strongly believe that um, I'm not 73 years old. I'm only 32. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, I was born in 1990, not in 1949. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. I know you have a new album out now, Rhythm and Soul. Would you tell us the backstory of this recording? Okay, that that was right after the pandemic. We did a recording, but um, it's um, all brand new tunes that was written during the pandemic because that was two years plus sitting here at home without playing, without traveling, without getting in contact with the audiences. And uh, it, it was hard, you know, a very difficult time. And uh, my solution was to get in the studio every single day. And then I was writing one or two tunes every single day. I made more than 650 videos of new tunes. And, and also a group of tunes that I never got the opportunity to record it before. And I take advantage of that, that time and, and I recorded as well. But uh, there was a big bunch of new tunes that we used in that uh, new record, Rhythm and Soul. Many of us in Atlanta are very excited about your upcoming performance at the Rialto. Can you tell us some of the music that will be on that program? Oh, there we're gonna we're gonna play music. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you don't want to tell us what will be. No, 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 no. To to tell you, to be honest, you know, I I never thought in advance what exactly specifically I'm gonna play in any of my concert ever because we're playing together for such a long time with the band, you know. And I call the tunes on the stage. It all depends how the audience react to the previous tune and. That's what I do, my repertoire, you know. I, I put together my, the show. Very much in the moment. Thinking about audiences, when, when you spoke about your being in Rome, when your wife was in London, do you find a difference in audiences around the world? You've played in so many countries. You know, I think that the people who enjoy and appreciate 
good music, they are pretty much the same kind of audience. I find very enthusiastic audience in many, many, many different countries and different places, you know, and it, it, it all depends how involved they are, how much they appreciate that kind of music and how they react, because that for us is extremely important, how they react to what we're doing on stage, you know, that sometimes we play in a big festival, outdoor big festival, where there's a bunch of people playing during the day. Sometimes it's, it's not the very same thing when some people come to, to see you specifically, you know? It's a little more, the connection is, 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 is better uh, and the reaction is better and uh, everything flows much better. But um, anyway, you know, anywhere you could find people who really appreciate and respect and follow the music we do on the stage. And, and, and it's very rewarding, you know, it's, it's such a privilege. And, and, you know, when you play for people who really enjoy it, what you're doing, uh, that all lift our spirit on stage. That's beautiful. So just as you carry the legacy of Dizzy Gillespie, I wondered if there are any young musicians for whom you've been a mentor. Are you passing the torch along? I I have been doing a, a, a few collaborations with young artists that I really respect and admire a lot because, you know, nowadays a lot of people are a kind of... Uh, Pessimist and um, um, a little upset with uh, the popular music nowadays in general, you know, the quality of the music uh, and mainly the bad language in, in some of those lyrics nowadays that really they're a kind of offenses, you know. But it's also a big group of young musicians, they're taking the music extremely seriously and they're doing incredible things and I respect and admire and encourage all of them of course and uh, I think the future is a guarantee because of those young people. Cuban-American jazz trumpeter, pianist and composer Arturo Sandoval performs at the Rialto Center on November 12th. More information is on our website wabe.org slash city lights. In a moment, we'll hear about the unifying joy of dance and Beethoven, amplifying Atlanta. This is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. 
For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. The iconic final movement of Beethoven's Symphony No. 9 is known as the Ode to Joy, based on the poem of Friedrich Schiller. The message is one of peace through unity for humankind, which is why the music is performed at momentous occasions such as the end of the Berlin Wall and as the anthem of the European Union. Now, the Ode to Joy serves as the backdrop to the new film Dancing Joy, The movie showcases dance troupes across the world, all performing to Beethoven's famous music. The film will be screened at the Coming Library on Saturday, November 12th. City Lights producer Summer Evans spoke with the producer of the film, Kate Tsubata, and two of the featured dancers, Mr. Jacques Nungura and Suhasani Muthrukrishnan. Here, Kate explains what inspired her to create Dancing Joy. The idea first came in 2005 when I was traveling in Israel. And uh, we were at the Dead Sea. And in a spontaneous moment, someone turned on some music and a group of us started dancing And everyone in the parking lot all started dancing together. Hundreds of people from different countries spontaneously began dancing. And when I saw this, I thought, this is what world peace looks like. And I I decided we had to make a movie that showed and gave people this kind of an experience. And that it does. It is beautifully shot with bunches of dance troops around the world. And I read that this was a family affair when creating the film, and your daughter is the director of the film. Yes. Can you tell us about the research process and kind of the prep of gathering all these different dance troops? The research in the movie was the most important aspect. Um, a typical movie can have a, a three-month pre-production period. Our film had about a nine-month pre-production period. We reached every single embassy in uh, Washington, D.C. We reached out to dance groups around the world uh, through the United Nations International uh, Council on Dance, all kinds of people to find dancers that not only were connected to their authentic dance tradition of their culture, but who had a vision for humanity and a vision for peace. Mm. And why did you want the movie to be set to Beethoven's Ninth Symphony? This was the only piece of music I could think of that had the universal message of all mankind. Beethoven overcame his own struggles with deafness to create this music. And I believe it really contains the longing of all humanity to live in joy. So this was the only music I felt that was universal enough to encompass the desire of all people.
Yeah, I was really surprised when doing my research. I didn't realize that Beethoven was completely deaf when he wrote this final symphony, his final symphony. The music itself is a triumph. And that's why we also included the culture of the the deaf and hard of hearing culture. So the Gallaudet University Dance Company was a key aspect and a key part of the film in honor of Beethoven's own accomplishment. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Uh, you have an American Sign Language dance troupe in there. So this was to pay homage to that fact that Beethoven was completely deaf? Yes. And also the deaf culture is a culture. So we have many cultures that are related to someone's ethnic identity or their religious identity. But the deaf culture also has its own identity, and we wanted to honor that. Mm -hmm. I did notice in the titles when it introduced each dance troupe, it went back and forth between the country that they're from or the style of dance. Why did you want to do it that way? Like there was a ballet, but then there was also Bulgaria. Because some of the dance cultures they have become a culture on their own, like ballet or flamenco or things like that, whereas others are still connected to a country origin, you know, such as, yeah, Bulgarian or Botswana or Nepal. So we tried to identify the groups by what most closely described uh, the dance that they were doing. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. And how long did it take you all to film this? Well, the pre-production, as I said, was about nine months. And then we filmed everything in 62 days, <laughs> hopscotching the globe. Wow. Uh, we traveled 56,000 miles. Wow. That's uh, amazing. We had a crew. <laughs> I know. I know. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And the shots were just beautiful. I was wondering if every place that you, uh, you filmed, the dance troupe, was actually in the country that they were in. Actually, that's a really good question. No, only there were nine groups that we were able to film within the U.S., even though they were representing their country. For instance, Honduras, Bulgaria, uh, Rwanda, India. We were able to film here because we could find locations that represented closely enough their um, home architecture or you know, location. And then the other ones, we actually traveled to them all around the globe. Oh, very cool. That's wonderful. I wouldn't have guessed that some of them were actually filmed in America. Oh, but I just wanted to tell you, one of the reasons that we chose Jacques and we chose Suha, uh, Suhasini is because they both have had a long history of dancing for peace. Jacques has been using dance as a way of bringing healing and forgiveness from the Rwandan a genocide and the tremendous suffering of his people. So Hassini has performed uh, workshops in Harvard Divinity School and um, Hawaii and many other places to show people how they can use dance to build peace and reconciliation between people. So I just wanted to mention that because that was a key reason that both of them participated in the film. Oh, my gosh. That is so great to know. I'm so happy you brought that up. That's amazing. And thank you both for the work that you've done. Thank you so much. I can't even tell you enough. They not only brought the choreography, which, by the way, all the choreography was done in advance of the filming. 
they had to figure out how to choreograph to the Beethoven music, not to traditional music that they were used to. And they came up with their costumes. They came up with many of the elements. So they were really co-authors of the film. That's so incredible. That also came to my mind. um, Just how did each of the dance troops perform to Beethoven's Ninth? And if they were listening to it while performing and who choreographed their pieces? Yeah, so what we did was we um, they sent us videos of their dance in advance, and then we um, actually analyzed the symphony, and we found sections of the symphony that had a similar tempo or feeling as their traditional music and dance. Then we segmented that music, and we sent them clips of the music, and we asked them, would you choreograph to this? Would you choreograph to that? We gave them six or eight different sections of the symphony, you know, to choreograph to. Then they created their choreography. They, they sent that back to us. They showed us through video or cell phone video or something like that. And then using that, that's how we then searched for locations using things like Google Earth and all different kinds of, um, you know, things that we only have now, you know. <laughs> so it was very much a a collaborative process in the pre-production and being done simultaneously all over the globe. I don't think there's ever been another movie that was created in this way. And not that I've seen. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's what makes this so <laughs> special and beautiful. I also loved the transitions your director of photography made between each dance troupe. It flowed very nicely from one to the other. Well, two things I'd just like to mention. Our editor, Mie Smith, was actually very intrinsic to creating the design and the look of the film in advance. So she was involved at the pre-filming stage, you know. Mm -hmm. So that was one very important thing. And the other thing was that she and the director collaborated and cooperated to create the messaging pieces of for instance, lifting up the earth, the sand, the water, mm. um, putting down the weapons, you know, many of those aspects, they actually brought that into the film. So, again, much of this had to do with everyone in the whole team. Their consciousness was, how do we tell this story of peace? Well, it definitely came through very well. Mr. Jacques, you are representing the Rwandan dance in the film. Can you tell us a little bit about your dancing background and how you got into it? My first uh, concert was in uh, 1983. It was in Bujumbura. I was eight years old. And then uh, we have to move back home in 1994 to Rwanda when the war, the genocide was kind of done. And then we have to move back home in Rwanda. And then I keep doing and studying. Uh, I went to the ball- National Ballet, went to Europe. We have tours in everywhere. And then until I got here, I won a big competition with, uh, with my friends in New York. That's how I ended up coming here. When you finish performing, so they saw people dancing, drumming, and all of that. They said, no, we need this here. And then they find us, uh, they give us a working visa to stay here so we can teach and tour presenting our dance. Mm. Can you tell us about this dance in particular in the film? 
How would you describe your traditional Rwandan dance? If you see how the ladies, uh, they dance, it's like they're using the arms as a, as a, a cow's horn. So when the men dancing, it's like uh, a warrior dance. So we have a spear, we have a shell. So the shot just to protect us, something coming to hit us, and then it ju- it's just a war dance. Very cool. And how did it feel to represent Rwanda in this film? Oh, so um, Miss Kate just uh, called me and asked me if I can be a part of it. And then and always I love to see people happy, to see people have a joy. And I asked myself, what can I do? I need to do something to to bring joy in people. People need joy. If it's something that's going to benefit people, I have to do it. So in me, I will say that I have done something to make people love, to give people joy. That is something I will appreciate it. Mm. Well, it definitely brought me a lot of joy watching it. Sue Hassani, would you tell us a little bit about your dancing background? Uh, So I was uh, very much interested in dancing from a very young age. Having seen this interest, my mom, uh, she said, yes, I want to train her, you know, professionally. And she put me, uh, she joined me in one of the leading uh, institutions in down in India, which specializes in Bharatanatyam, the South Indian classical dance form. The institution name is called Kalakshetra, Rukmini Devi College of Fine Arts. It's from Chennai. So that's where I did my diploma and then further honed my skills under various uh, bistros in the field. Then I came here and meanwhile, I was also performing and touring the world and inside India. Then I got married and came here and started my own dance academy and simultaneously performing too. That's wonderful. And for those unfamiliar with the traditional Indian classical dance that you just talked about, would you explain its significance in Indian heritage and even Hindu tradition? In Indian tradition and Hindu uh, philosophy or the Hindu spiritual religion, dance is an integral part of life, you know. So this particular classical dance form, which is called the Bharatanatyam, It has three core elements in it. Uh, The emotions, bhava, which is called bhava, uh, the raga, the melody part, the rhythm, tala. So all these three elements confluence together to make it the art form it is today. So the history of the art form goes way beyond 200 years or even more than that. So this totality of this art form is what, you know, sounds it makes it very interesting to dance and for the audience to you know really enjoy this uh, art form it mainly uh, focuses on communicating the uh, history good moral values the culture the temple architecture the literature the poetry everything everything uh, under one roof so that is the beauty of this art form bharatanatyam mm. so kate what are you hoping that viewers will take away from this film and how this can be a unifying experience? If there was one message that I think everyone in the world needs to hear, it is that they are precious, that every human life is so vital and so important to every other human life. So we hoped in making the movie that it would sort of 
um, envelop and immerse and hold each viewer in, um, I want to say, careful hands and bring me gently, but very powerfully from place to place and show them how even though we are all so different and so so unique that we actually share all these same common attributes. And then my hope was that by the end of the movie, each viewer would say, oh, this is who I am and this is what I can do in this world and would feel inspired to contribute their beauty to the totality of the human experience and to our planet. Kate Subata, producer of the film Dancing Joy. She was joined by two of the featured dancers, Mr. Jacques Ngura and Suhasini Krishna. The movie is screening at the Coming Library on Saturday. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up... We'll hear about the return of the annual creative writing event, the Letters Festival. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. This weekend, the annual Letters Festival returns after a two-year hiatus. The director of the festival, Scott Dottridge-Demare, shared what the festival entails. The Letters Festival is an annual creative writing event presented by Lost in the Letters. Every year, we bring together some of the most exciting authors working in Atlanta and from around the country for live readings and generative writing workshops. Live readings will take place at the Mint Gallery, and the workshops will be at the Elevator Factory. Atlanta-based playwright Tremaine Brathwaite will present the first play ever performed at the festival. Director DeMare believes Atlanta is the perfect place to hold this event. Atlanta is home to many wonderful writers and voracious readers, Uh, We have a large creative community here in the city. We want to bring people together to celebrate creative writing through dynamic and high-quality writing programs in an engaging and generative environment at a low cost so we can all continue finding more inspiration and building our skill set. We wholeheartedly believe that creative writing can serve as a catalyst for connecting community members and that when members of the community effectively and artistically share our stories, there can be a transformation and a kind of deepening in how we view ourselves, our neighbors, and the city around us. Details about the festival and registration are available on their website at lostintheletters.org. Before we go today, I'd like to send a special message to a recent donor. Happy birthday, Mark Crum. We appreciate your being part of our City Lights community. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Rebecca and Megan Lavelle of the Grammy-nominated band Larkin Poe 
Tell us about their new release, Blood Harmony. Plus, author Ramal Toon talks about his new book, I Wish My Dad, The Power of Vulnerable Conversations Between Fathers and Sons. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the legendary jazz musician Arturo Sandoval, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. Do connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram, and you can follow me on Twitter at LOIS. R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E at Latin. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org donate. And thanks.